0: Hello and welcome to the Tech Diplomacy podcast, brought to you from the Norwegian Consulate General in San Francisco. I'm Gri Rabe Henriksen, the Consul General of Norway. Technology has always played a role in human life, yet over the past decade we've seen this role explode to a degree we can barely comprehend. As tech companies grow in scale, reach and wealth, governments have begun focusing efforts on bringing these new players into the diplomatic discussion. In this podcast, we invite diplomats, researchers, civil society and tech companies to talk about anything and everything at the intersection between new and emerging technologies, regulations and its implications. Join us as we explore tech diplomacy.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Tech Diplomacy podcast. I'm Cecilie Herslitt, and I'm your host today. Our guest today is Gopi Kalair, Chief Evangelist for AI and Digital Transformation at Google. Welcome, Gupi. What an honor to have you here to talk about how Google is using AI to solve the world problems.
2: Hello, Cecilia. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me on the podcast.
1: Before we start, I'm curious to hear how you managed to set up a live video meeting between His Holiness Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu.
2: Sure. Several years ago, I was working on a product called Google Hangouts that is the precursor to what is now known as Google Meet that allows for people to see each other, talk to each other on video. So in order to promote and market the product, I was thinking of different ideas by which we can show to uh, consumers how these products can be used. And one of the ideas I had was, how about if we have a dialogue? Between Archbishop Desmond Tutu and uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, two great friends, two both Nobel Peace Prize winners, and have a dialogue on uh, peace uh, in the world and nonviolence. And no sooner had I put that idea on paper, sometimes things manifest. We got a call from South Africa saying it was Archbishop Desmond Tutu's birthday. The Dalai Lama had been invited to join him and give the keynote address, but for his visa had not been granted yet, so he may not be able to travel And there is a piece of technology that could be used for this. And remember, all of this is before we had all this video conferencing technology that everyone now takes for granted from multiple sources, including Google Meet. So we said, we have been working on something, and we offered it up to them. So for all practical purposes, the Dalai Lama was the first to beta test it. He had no choice but to use it, but he used it, sat in his house in Dharamsala in India. Archbishop Desmond Tutu was at uh, University of Cape West in Cape Town, and they had an amazing dialogue uh, to celebrate and honor his birthday. So it started with a bit of intention of an impossible idea, and then set of circumstances that I didn't orchestrate, manifested it.
1: That's wonderful. Moving on to today's topic, artificial intelligence is now everything, everywhere, all at once. Google launched BART, the chatbot in March, as an answer to Microsoft ChatGPT. With Google's chatbot, we can speak to robots. I understand people are also falling in love with the robots these days. And I've also heard you call the iPhone the 79th organ of the human body. We can't simply live a day without it, can we? And in San Francisco, thanks to Google, we have self-driven cars. A colleague of mine took a self-driven car home from the theater the other day. I'm curious to hear, how will AI affect our daily lives?
2: Well, AI is one of the most fundamental, most profound pieces of technology that uh, humans in general are working on. And it has been around as a concept for some 40 years, but what has changed is all of a sudden, it's now coming of age in terms of actual usability by everyday people using natural language and we can talk to it and engage with it. We have the architectures and the the compute power to make it come alive and I'm excited about the kind of innovation we'll see over the next five, 10, 20 years. And I expect AI will get embedded in every aspect of a life. It'll transform every domain of uh, human life. It'll change music, it'll change medicine, it'll change manufacturing. And, and the reason I feel so confident and good about it is, I see AI as an amplification of NI or natural intelligence or human intelligence. And given that human intelligence is what makes all these domains work, whether you're talking of agriculture or whether you're talking about education or whether you talk about transportation, AI can now make all of these fields incredibly better and different. So, let me give you a couple of examples of how I'd see this will come alive. So in the field of education, we need teachers, instructors, we need tutors. And getting a tutor might not be accessible to every single student, it's, it costs money. But using AI, you could have personal tutors. The AI understands you and your needs and how fast you learn and what kind of learning method best works for you and can adapt itself to you, and all of a sudden you can have a personal tutor, and education may change very dramatically. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> we would all love that, right? Yeah, exactly. Or take another area like uh, nutrition, hugely important, right? Our uh, body is depends on nutrition for good quality, healthy living, or if you have bad nutrition practices, you do a lot of damage to your body. It it really is a fundamental driver of healthcare, and yet most people don't know. Good nutrition is bad. It takes a lot of studying. It can be very confusing. It can be daunting. Everyone's situation is different. So ideally, if you had a personal nutritionist, it would be of tremendous help because now you would know what to eat and how much to eat, and how to adapt your food when you travel based on seasonality, etc. But it also, is frightfully. Uh, expensive to uh, for everyone to have their own private nutritionist. But AI tools can help that. In the future, I would expect that you could actually point your phone at a plate of food and might be able to figure out what's in it, how much is in it, and give you some advice based on what it sees. And probably track the data, not probably, will track the data over a period of time and say, across the year, how much sugar did you consume and uh, how much protein did you eat? And... and and change your dietary habits. That's uh, or, wonderful. Or a third example in a professional setting. In many parts of the world, expert medical specialists might be hard like a radiologist and, uh, and there's only really so many images that they can look at each day and uh, and write out the radiology reports, but in future AI could actually look at radiology reports as they come in and pull out the 20 that the radiologist needs to see or just the 20 that they need to see first because the AI tool is actually detecting there is some problem there. So it can help triage what these specialists and experts do and they will be able to process more than they can. And and there's lots of incredible use cases like that I can think of in every single domain. Um, one final one, I was talking to Uh, Elliot, the CEO of Project Mineral, which is one of the experiments at Google too, or Alphabet, the parent company to transform agriculture. And in the past, we would treat a field of corn exactly the same. We didn't distinguish between one plant versus another in terms of irrigation, fertilizers, pest control, et cetera. But this Project Mineral is building tools like a rover, Uh, which will scan the entire field and can go down to even counting the number of grains on each of those uh, wheat plants. And it can give a plan to the farmer as to how to treat different plants in the field differently based on each individual requirement of the plant. That level of sophistication we just have not had in an area like agriculture. So now all of a sudden agriculture starts looking like how we deal with humans individually in healthcare. Uh, yeah, so the potential is unbelievable. And 10, 20 years from now, we will barely recognize the world as it exists today because AI has transformed it.
1: That's fascinating. So I hear that you're saying that AI can do a lot of good things for society and improve a lot of things in medicine and and the farming I'm I'm also curious to hear how it will affect uh, my daily life. For example, in five to ten years, I I will not Google search as much as I do every day today. But maybe I get a personal agent or a concierge that will plan my trips and do my shopping and find the best prices and everything. And this might reshuffle the tech market. Is this something that might happen in the near future?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, It's... Definitely, I think it's going to happen. It's going to transform the way we consume information, the way we conduct commerce. So, you mentioned the question of trip. So, today, if you are going on a trip, let's say taking a family for a vacation to Hawaii, you need to think of each component separately and manage it, which is hotels and travel, air, booking air travel, booking restaurants, booking entertainment and special. Experiences for the family, and that might be all part of a week long holiday that you take. But in the future, I can imagine a scenario where an AI agent, which has learned over a period of time, like your personal assistant, except it's an AI agent, understands you and your family's preferences. And if you just say a five day trip to Hawaii, can actually come up with the recommendations like a human travel agent would do today suggesting you may want to take this flight. It already knows that you live in San Francisco and that you're going to Maui. Here's a kind of hotels you're attracted to that your your daughter likes a certain kind of uh, excursion and the son likes a different kind of, he wants to take surf lessons. So like a personal concierge, you could put together an entire plan or maybe three options and then you look through it and say, okay, I like option two, go ahead and make the booking, and it could actually then complete all of the booking, etc. Very possible for those kind of scenarios. Uh, no different from how we live today, Cecilia, where 10 years ago, it would have been impossible if I gave you a scenario like that. You would have said science fiction, but today we do it without thinking about it. So for example, today if you're driving to the airport, you just depend on a device to give you turn-by-turn turn directions. That seems like science fiction. I would have seen like science fiction, but yeah. you know, using Google Maps, you let a device talk you. It's an inanimate device that's telling you make a left turn or no, you skipped it, make a U-turn and come back and get back on the freeway. Uh, we use the phone as a remote control to the world. We know we can click on it, a right can come pick us up. We use the phone to check in for the flight. The phone becomes the boarding pass. The phone becomes the same device. You can click on it after you finished your security check, order a cup of coffee at the coffee shop at the airport terminal. When you get there, it's waiting for you. Not only really, it's waiting, automatically the barista knows your name and greets you by name. You know, Say, Cecilia, here's your latte. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah, I mean, I all like of these that. things. And you know, if you look at it, it seems kind of crazy how we do it. We have taken it for granted, but technology took a lot of friction out of a simple experience like going from home to the airport and boarding a plane. In a similar way, you, you can AI will probably or likely create scenarios that today seem like science fiction, but will actually be everyday life for all of us. I'm super excited.
1: If the machines are turning into humans, can we learn them to be cautious and develop human skills? Can they learn to take safety measures themselves?
2: Well, I disagree with that first statement saying machines are turning into humans. I don't think so. They will not. Machines are machines. Humans have a higher order capacity. Uh, That's at play here. Um, Including the whole notion of consciousness and a certain level of natural intelligence. And the machines do these things when they see that they can actually generate images or can create music, feel like, yeah, they're beginning to look like humans, but they're not quite machines and machines. Uh, They can be trained to take the safety measures that we want. Ultimately, I think the human is in charge here, and we have to develop these technologies with guardrails, with a lot of safety measures determined by us. Yes.
1: Can we sort of be outsmarted uh, by the machines and in your view how can we make sure that uh, we we do have an environment to ensure the safety ai
2: yes uh, i agree with you cecilia every piece of technology we have to think in terms of the safety measures and uh, that's important and This has been the case of human history going back 200,000 years ago, and I'm always fond of telling this example. 200,000 years ago, our ancestors, the Homo erectus, discovered fire. And when they first discovered fire, I'm sure a group of Homo erectus people would have sat around excitedly talking about this orange dancing thing that can heat their caves, that can keep predators away, that can cook the antelope that they caught, make it tastier, more digestible. But the second or third week, that excitement probably went down a little bit when they realized that the same fire also has some dangerous capabilities. One of the children might have run into the fire and burned themselves. The cave became not very livable because the smoke and the smell became unbearable and they had to find another cave. And worse, they found that other... Uh, humans like them could use the fire to cause damage. For example, maybe set fire to their corner of the forest in a territorial dispute. So over time we put in safety measures. What kind of safety measures? We developed gloves and mittens to handle the fire. We created these enclosed spaces called ovens and fireplaces to hold the fire. In every building now we have fire alarms and smoke detection systems. We can't move into a building unless the fire inspectors have come and signed off on it. They come back to check every few months. And just in case, despite all that, if things go wrong, in every city in the world today, we have fire protection force that are awake 24 hours of the day, waiting for an alarm to go off and they'll respond immediately to react to it. And we found despite all that, there are some bad actors who might set fire deliberately so we built things into the legal system, arson laws, to deal with that and punish people who did that. In a similar way, every piece of technology that comes out, we have to look at these kind of implications and put in the guard rates checks and balances, and AI is no different uh, as we introduce this technology.
1: As much as I love technology, it seems for me that global governance is needed in this area. EU is leading on tech regulations and working on an AI act and the U.S. Congress have also recently proposed to regulate AI. So it seems for me that, um, that the government has to gear up and, and maybe also that the tech culture has to facilitate innovation and ensure reduced harmful AI.
2: Absolutely. Yes. I mean, it's a, it's, this is going to be a multi-party effort and, uh Organizations, societies, governments, regulatory bodies, and maybe in the future, an international agency for monitoring and regulating AI would be created and participate in it. So this whole technology is being created collectively by human beings across many different organizations, companies, research labs, and therefore any Agreement rules, regulations, etc., also has to be a joint uh, human effort.
1: Moving on to the environment. The UN goal on climate and environment is to get to zero emissions in 2050. In addition, EU, Norway, and other countries have the goal to reach 55% within 2030 sun water and wind is good contributors but in your perspective can breakthrough technologies take us to the goal
2: absolutely yeah Uh, and i can think of many different ways by which that happens first of all you'd remember that all of these uh, internet-based technologies ai related efforts are very compute intensive consume a lot of power so what kind of power we use uh, for these data centers will be a big determinant and if you're using clean carbon neutral power or carbon free power, as Google is committed to doing. uh, That can make a difference to the environment itself. Uh, Because general consumers don't realize that today, every activity that you do when you watch a YouTube video, when you search on Google Maps, you're triggering some kind of compute activity and that's consuming power. I don't think most people make that association. So therefore, companies providing these services to have to think hard about it. But on top of it, I can think of several examples by which AI can be used to affect the environment in a positive way. So I'll give you an example. A few months ago, we introduced eco-friendly map routing, eco-friendly routing. And what it does is, in the past, when Cecilia you were going from, let's say, San Francisco to the city to the airport, and I was going from the same source destination to the final destination, the airport, we would get the exact same routes. But along the way, a piece of innovation called eco-friendly routing was introduced where it now gives you the option that if you drive a diesel car versus a gasoline car versus an electric car versus a hybrid car, a different routing for each car type might be more fuel efficient. Maybe it takes a couple minutes longer, but it's more fuel efficient. And when we started giving those options to the drivers, they chose those other options, people who want to be environmentally responsible and conscious. Uh, So when we tested this in Canada over a period of, I believe, eight months, uh, we had the equivalent of taking 100,000 cars off the road because of what eco-friendly routing was. And now it's been rolled out to Europe as well. So that's an example of how we can use these broad consumer surfaces that are used by a billion people, billion plus people, to be more environmentally responsible. Or another example of that is uh, one of the things that we have to deal with in the environment is wildfires. We have to deal with floods. Every year, a quarter billion people are displaced due to flooding. And it's a cost, a lot of cost of life and property. And if we can give early warning signals to them, then we protect them and their lives and their property. So a team at Google started working on uh, predicting floods by building AI models. They tested it around the Ganges River in India. And the models work well. They were able to predict how the river would behave in the different scenarios. And as we get real-world data about the amount of rainfall, about... Other situations, uh, atmospheric factor, real time that got fled, fed into the model. And the model would give, adjust its predictions to say how the river is going to behave. And we were able to send these signals to, to uh, send the information to the authorities who then communicated to the local population. And this model was extended to many other rivers in India and Bangladesh and now all over the world. If I'm not mistaken, I think about 300 rivers that are prone to flooding have this model built for them. So that's an example of how we can have some degree of predictability or environmental damage. Or traffic is another one based on, we optimize people's routing based simply on changing traffic conditions, and that reduces fuel consumption. So I can think of many, many examples of how AI could have a very positive effect on the environment. Uh, and I did mention Project Mineral before. Uh, agriculture is a big uh, source of greenhouse gas emissions. And I think somewhere around a third of fresh water might be consumed by agriculture. So if you can use AI to change agriculture, which has essentially been the same for decades, that'll have a huge effect on the environment as well.
1: That's wonderful to hear. Um to, to, to solve the global cl- climate and environment is at least one thing that I think all companies and all governments agree to do. If we compare your market value and the BNP of countries, you will be on the size of Australia. So when big tech companies like Google take action, it certainly has an impact. You are also author of two books, it's fascinating uh, to hear your stories from the high tech work life in Google and have you advise people to become truly happy. Please share some advice. How can we become more happy, creative and live a life with more purpose?
2: Absolutely, Oh, that's one of my favorite things to talk about. Yes, uh, thank you for mentioning my two books. The first one is called The Internet to the Inner Net. And the second one is called The Happy Human. and. This book was provoked by the idea that while all these technologies that humans build are amazing and incredible, it's part of my daily professional life, I felt that the most important, complex system that we deal with and get to use is our own human body, our body, our breath, our brain, our consciousness, our intelligence, our emotions. And the two axioms I worked with was the fact that all of a life experience has to be filtered by what I called the inner net. It's a piece of food I digest, a piece of music I listen to, a piece uh, a piece of literature that I read. It all has to be processed by my own body and my senses. And similarly, all of our self-expression also has to come from this body. So whether you design a piece of furniture or whether you write a business plan, whether you compose music, or whether you stand on stage and give a speech, Everything has to come from within us, our body, our brain, our creativity. So this really book, this book explores how do you put that internal system, our body, our brain, our activities into a state of peak performance? And how do you use it to navigate your way to happiness?
1: No, that's wonderful. Are you planning to write more books?
2: I could. I could. I would love to do one on innovation and probably something on AI and from a social and cultural perspective sometime in the future. But I got my hands full now understanding what AI is doing uh, before I pause and take the time to write a book. It takes many years to write a book.
1: I can imagine. One question before we round off. Tell me more about the championship in public speaking.
2: Sure, this is one of my favorite things to do. Years ago, I realized that if you want to have a true impact, you need to be able to communicate effectively. And I speak English as a third language. I was born and raised in India. I learned Malayalam and Tamil before I learned English. And so I wanted to build up the skill and I started uh, practicing and developing my public speaking skills. And then I found out that there was something called the World Championship of Public Speaking uh, that's run by international public speaking organizations. Co- organization called Toastmasters International. I see them as the IOC, the International Olympic Committee of Public Speaking. So the world championship, about 35,000 estimated people enter the competition from 145 countries around the world in the first round. And in six rounds, one person is left standing as the world champion of public speaking for that year. So I've competed in this for many years. I love doing it. It improves my communication speaking abilities. Four times I've been in the semifinals. And in 2018, I finished top 20 in the world at the world championship at Chicago. I am back in the competition this year. Because the one thing I've not done is win it outright. And I just keep going to try it uh, and see how far I can take it. So wish me luck, Cecilia.
1: I wish you really good luck. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about how Google uses AI to solve the world problems.
2: Thank you, Cecilia. My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Stay tuned for our next episode of the Tech Diplomacy Podcast.